if you're on your own, if you see yourself as a freelancer, an expert, somebody who's looking for another gig, here's a prediction. You have a really lousy boss. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. And now a word from ZipRecruiter, our presenting sponsor. Everyone has a cronut. Have you found yours? Hey there, I'm Ian Siegel, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I've learned a few things along the way about hiring and about life as an entrepreneur, and I'll be joining you throughout the season to share some of those insights. Like how a cronut can help you figure out what your specialty is. More on that later in the show. I founded ZipRecruiter because I knew there was a smarter way for businesses to find talent. Today, companies of all sizes and industries use ZipRecruiter to fill their hiring needs. And if you're hiring now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com Seth. ZipRecruiter's powerful technology finds great candidates for you and invites them to apply to your job. Try it free at ZipRecruiter.com Seth. Thanks and see you later in the show. Yeah, a lousy boss, you. We're not that good at managing our careers. And we're even worse at managing our day when we're a freelancer. I've been a freelancer for more than 40 years off and on. I know the feeling. This episode is about eight or nine ways to think about how you can manage your freelance career, how you can enter the gig economy in a way that lets you be valued, be respected, and do the work that you're proud of. First, how did it even start? Why don't we all just have jobs? Well, in the 1930s, Ronald Coase wrote an important paper about the theory of the firm. And he asked that very same question. Why do firms exist at all? Why don't we just buy every single service and good we need from the market? Because after all, it's cheaper. If you can buy stenography from an open market for stenographers, if you can buy a a lift when you need a lift, if you can buy a builder when you need a builder, well, you don't have to pay those people when they're not working, and you can always get the best price from the best person. And yet, and yet we built these companies 30,000, 50,000. There are companies in the United States with 200,000 full-time employees. Why? Well, the theory of the firm is based on a simple bit of math. When the information that we get and the certainty that we get from having employees is worth more than what we have to pay the market, it's better to hire somebody. And you've probably already guessed It turns out the internet, as usual, changes everything. Changes everything because now we get the information much quicker and more clearly about freelancers than we even do about our own employees. Therefore, more and more work is moving. Moving from that person in the typing pool or the stenography pool or the builder pool internally to an open marketplace. And as more and more of us become freelancers, we end up hiring other freelancers. And so it continues. Turns out you're not in the minority, you're in the majority. From the very first time you got paid to mow the lawn or to babysit a kid, you've been in the majority. You're one of us. You're a freelancer. So, what to learn? I'll begin with this. Freelancers are not the same as entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs, and I've been one, get paid when they sleep. 
They create assets. They build something bigger than themselves. They often use somebody else's money to do that. They build something of value that they can sell. Their job is to not do their job. Their job is to invent jobs for other people. A freelancer, on the other hand, she gets paid when she works. She gets paid for her craft. She gets paid for showing up and creating magic. And the pain can kick in when the freelancer thinks she has to grow, thinks she has to start acting like an entrepreneur. Because then what do you do? You start hiring people to do what you were doing. And when you do that, inevitably, you're going to hire people who aren't quite as dedicated as you, not quite as talented as you, but who work cheaper. And then when you get into a crunch, when the client is really important, or there's something that's got to get done, you hire the very best available person who works the cheapest. And you know who that is? You. We hire ourselves. We hire ourselves in an emergency, in a pinch, or when we're just too cheap to hire someone else. And we end up becoming frazzled. Because now we're not an entrepreneur anymore because we're doing the work. And we're not a freelancer anymore because we're paying a bunch of people. So, rule number one. If you're going to be a freelancer, be a freelancer. Own it. Adore it. Adopt it. Be proud of the fact that when someone hires you, they're hiring you. That doesn't mean you can't find leverage. Doesn't mean you can't find tools. Doesn't even mean you can't find help to help you do what you do. But your core, the work you stand for, that's going to get done by you. Next up, there is an infinite market for mediocre freelancers who are cheaper than other freelancers in a commodity business. So if you need photo retouching, if you got a picture and you want to knock out the background and there's a lot of blonde hair in there, you need someone to do that for you. If everyone's the same, if you can't tell the difference, you're just going to buy the person who's the cheapest and the fastest. And so if you seek to own the position of cheapest and fastest, please do not be surprised to discover that your life isn't that great because you're racing a race to the bottom. And the problem with a race to the bottom is you might win. Or even worse, you might come in second. That part of what we get to do as freelancers is choose to race to the top. To develop skills and tools and a reputation that can be summarized in one simple sentence. You'll pay a lot, but you'll get more than you paid for. That's not for everybody. But that's okay, because as we'll hear, being for everybody is a trap. Tools. Tools are things you're going to have to invest in. Tools are things you're going to have to build. And skills? You will never be done improving your skills. Years ago, not very many people owned a fancy camera. So you could buy a fancy camera and announce to the world, I'm a photographer. That doesn't work anymore. Because now every single person has a camera in their pocket, and the cost of a fancy camera is lower than ever before. As a result, your tool is insufficient. The question is, have you developed the skills? Not just the skills of what seems to be related to your craft, the skill of f-stop, or the skill of using a mouse in a certain way, but the emotional skills, the emotional labor, the ability to calm down a panicked client, the ability to work your way through a jam 
without freaking out. These emotional skills line up with our tactical skills and permit us to be a better version of the freelancer we set out to be. If you're going to be a professional freelancer, you need to pick what you do. It begins by choosing the right industry. Years ago, my friend Lynn decided she wanted to work in soft goods and make them for toy companies. Her goal was to have a toy company license what she made and bring it to the market. She discovered after a brutal nine months that toy companies don't generally like freelancers. At least back then, they did not want to buy an idea from someone on the outside. They'd been burned too many times before. Lesson learned. At the same time, I was in the book industry. I was a book packager selling ideas to book publishers. And what I discovered is exactly the opposite. The people in the book business never want to write their own book. They just don't. They insist on buying it from people outside the firm. So when I showed up and said, who do I talk to about selling you my idea? Not only were they eager to help me, there were entire books listing people by name who were eager to see my idea. So as you approach your decision as to what you're going to do, begin by picking an industry where you are welcome. The second half of this is getting out of the mindset that you need to please the maximum number of people, that you need the biggest possible market. In fact, because you're a freelancer, you don't need that much work, just enough. The goal is to choose the smallest viable market, not the biggest one. The smallest market that can sustain you. It might just be six companies, a few people at six different companies, enough to keep you busy all the time. One successful freelancer I met did nothing but take family photos of families in a certain spot on a certain beach at a certain vacation spot. That's all she did. It was enough because she specialized in that tiny group and knew exactly who she was trying to please. If she could overwhelm those people with her expertise, with her emotional connection, with what the process was like, then yes, she could be the one and only. She could be the one that everyone chose in that small group because why would you pick anyone else? We've already covered quite a bit, and it's worth recapping, because if you just did these few things, you would be busy preparing for a long time, and you would be profitable for even longer. The first one, choosing an industry that's glad to see you arrive. Having the tools and the skills, hard-earned, over and over, invested, where it is clear that you can do what you say you're going to do that you can charge a lot, but clearly deliver more than people paid for. Moving on to the idea of focusing on the smallest viable audience, the smallest group of people that will talk about you, that will wait in line when you're busy. That this small set of assets, of skills, of approaches is super rare. Most freelancers don't even bother with this beginning set. And then we can move on. The next one is the discipline of prospecting. 
Many people who become freelancers would like to have a job without a boss. They want an endless stream of decent projects, fairly well paid, and they want to do their work. The problem with this is if you spend all your time doing your work, you're not spending any time doing your business. And your business is the act of getting more work. If you wait until all of your work is gone before you start building your business, you're going to have hot times and cold times. You're going to feel overwhelmed with work, and then you're going to panic because you're going to feel like you're never going to have work again. I learned this the hard way when I was a book packager. You're deep into the work you set out to do. You're happy with it. You're engaged with it. You don't care too much that five months from now, this project's going to be over. But then it's three months, and then it's one month, and then you got nothing. Stand still. And it might take three or four or five or six months to get another project. That's a hard way to live. The alternative is to commit to the discipline of prospecting, to allocate a certain amount of time every single day to honing your skills, to finding new tools, to spreading the word, to earning the privilege of being seen as the person who does what you do. Now, I'm not talking about going to networking events. There is a mindset back probably from the days of uh, Willie Loman that to be known is to be trusted and to be trusted is to be picked. That there are a hundred undifferentiated freelancers in what you do, but you'll get picked because you're the person who hangs out at the country club for lunch. You'll get picked because you're fun to be around on weekends. It turns out that's rarely the case. What gets us picked is when you are part of a category of one. In fact, when you are the only person in a category of one. You don't want people to say, get me a designer. You want them to say, get me Stefan Sagmeister. Because Stefan Sagmeister, while he is a designer, is in a category of one. There are no easy substitutes. Chip Kidd, the fabled book cover designer. Get me Chip Kidd. Well, sure, other people could design a book for you, but only one person can design a Chip Kid cover for you. And so we have this opportunity, if we want to invest in it, to get beyond being one of many, someone who does a commodity job at a fair price, and shift to becoming a category of one. There's a price to it. The price begins by doing exceptional work, but not just exceptional work, quirky work, unique work, doing work that looks like you, that sounds like you, that feels like you, doing work that most people don't like. This is important. It's not the work that everyone says, oh, good job. It's the work where some people at first say, I don't like it that much. Because that is part and parcel of what it means to do this work that is actually seen as unique, that is actually seen as yours. Two more concepts that go together. The first one is understanding the role of free in the work you do. And the second one is being comfortable with advocating for yourself. So let's talk about free first. Over and over again, the world is going to ask you to do work for free. They're going to ask you to do work for free because they don't really trust you, or because there's so many alternatives to choose from 
that it's a great negotiating strategy. They're going to ask you to do work for free and promise that if this is good, then maybe they'll buy something from you. My take on this goes like this. That thing you sell, you should sell it. You should find something else that you do for free. Something else that you pay to the community. Something else you do to enrich the conversation. Something else that you do to get people to see you, to understand you, and to be really clear that they want you, that you are a part of a category of one. And so, you could find your spot. If someone wants me to get on a plane and give a speech, that's expensive. If someone wants to read my blog, that's free. I don't sell blog posts to anybody because my blog is free. But I don't give away speeches to anybody except nonprofits because my speeches are expensive. By differentiating what's free, you can earn trust and attention from people who are seeking to understand you. But by being really clear about what's for sale, you can establish value. This will mean that some people will walk away. That many people will say, well, if I can't get it from you for free, I'll leave. And this places a requirement on you to have work that's so good that some people would miss it if it wasn't free. That some people will pay for it anyway. Because there are always going to be people, always, in this internet economy who are offering things like the free hugs guy that you want to sell. And you can't argue with those people. They're going to give it away for free if they want to. What you have to figure out how to do is build relationships and practices and skills that nobody else can give away for free because you are a category of one, which leads to the idea of being comfortable advocating for yourself. That part of what you signed up for when you became a freelancer is that you don't have a sales rep. You're the sales rep. And as a sales rep, You need to be comfortable to look somebody in the eye and with respect say, no. Sorry, no, we can't do this for free. I hear you. I read your RFP, but I don't answer RFPs. If you want me, my category of one, what I do, this is what it costs. Call me if you need me. The ability to own our work, to have pride in what we're selling is essential if you want better clients. Because your better clients, the people you want to serve, they want to work with a freelancer who understands her value. They want to work with a freelancer who is really clear that she's a professional and she has value to add. How then to move up? How does a freelancer get more? More income, more respect. How does a freelancer figure out how to turn this from something you do now and then into a career. Because it's challenging. You're good at your craft, but you're not producing more value in terms of income than you were a year or two or three ago. And so the alternative seems like you have to work harder and harder and harder, more and more hours, giving up the freedom you sought in the first place. Or you need to hire people, and those people will lower the average but at least you'll get bigger. I think there's a third path. And the third path is get better clients. That if you start removing from your list the difficult clients, the clients who don't pay on time, the clients who push you to do mediocre work, 
and incrementally replace them with clients who want better, who are happy to pay for better, who trust you enough to do better, something will happen. What will happen is your work will improve and the word will spread. Your portfolio will get better and the word will spread. Good clients lead to even better clients. Better clients lead to great clients. And when you have great clients, they're eager to pay you more because they're looking for more than a commodity. They've gone way beyond the theory of the firm. They've gone way beyond Ronald Coase telling them that information and security are what matters. No, they're looking for amazing. They're looking for extraordinary. They're looking for a story, a story they can tell their clients or their bosses. They're looking to make something magical. If you want clients like that, you need to earn them. You need to dig in, do work that makes you and them uncomfortable until it's clear that it's magical. Magical in the way that you are delivering clarity, a story, efficiency, something that solves a problem in a new way. None of this is easy. And if you had a great boss, he or she would understand that none of this is easy. But they'd end up encouraging you to keep doing it. In fact, demanding that you keep doing it. Being smart about how good you are, about who you do it for, about how you charge. That this opportunity to dig even deeper and do this work, that's what you signed up for. Not a lousy job with a lousy boss. Thanks for listening. In a minute, we'll be back to answer your live questions from the last episode about doing it live. But first, here's a message from our presenting sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Hi again. This is Ian Siegel, CEO and co-founder of ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Every business fundamentally only sells one thing. There's something your business does, some service it provides, some product it has that is the identity of your business. And the hardest thing for most new business owners is to figure out what their one thing is. Let me give you an example. You've been to a lot of bakeries in your life and I said, hey, you want to come to a bakery with me? You're probably not that excited. But if I told you we were going to the Cronut Bakery where the Cronut was invented, that's an identity for that business. That makes that business interesting. That's the importance of identifying your one thing. I hope you found it helpful. Here's something else that may be helpful. If you're hiring, you can try ZipRecruiter for free today. ZipRecruiter posts your job to over 100 of the web's top job boards. So great candidates have a lot of different ways to find your job. To get started, go to ZipRecruiter.com Seth. That's ZipRecruiter.com Seth. Try it out. See how it feels and experience how simple hiring can be. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. I covered everything. Okay, so what are we going to talk about? All right, we have a few questions. Um, this one's from Rebecca. Um, is there any case where being in sync or live isn't more efficient? Well, being in sync or live is almost never more efficient. It might be more real. It might be more human. 
but it's not more efficient. So let's think about my example of the Broadway theater. If you go to see Hamilton tonight, a hundred people have to show up and do their job. And if one of them misses the show, everyone will know. On the other hand, if you go to see, I don't know, Chicago, the musical on Netflix, you and a million other people can watch it and no one has to show up because they recorded it already. It's done. It's out of sync. So the way we efficiently built our industrialized culture is by shifting the artifacts of that culture from things that are live to things that aren't live. On the other hand, please don't get engaged by sending your spouse-to-be a video. Show up in person. There are a lot of things we do live because they're better, not because they're more efficient. Um, all right, this one's from Ganbar. Other than for events, how can a brand use live video for their audiences? Okay, so how can a brand use live video for their audiences? One thing that we've learned from Facebook is that Facebook changes its algorithm. That when their algorithm is in favor of something and you use the thing that they want you to use, it gets spread further and faster. So the reason I'm talking to you on Facebook Live and not, say, on Zoom or Skype or some other format is that for a long time, like a year, Facebook has favored Facebook Live in the algorithm. As a result, because you and I are talking right now, your friends are going to hear about this. And so it will spread, and so it will spread, and so it will spread. And we've seen people, I mean, Gary Vee in particular, who have used this medium to spread their ideas further and faster. So if I was a corporation that didn't have you know, a spokesperson, I would seriously consider doing things like updates and customer service via, via live video, because it's urgent, it's real, it's harder to whitewash the thing and paper it over. That means that you will gain a different kind of connection with your users. Is it efficient? Of course it's not efficient but it's urgent, and urgent might be what you're looking for. All right, we'll do two more. Two more. All right, this one's from Robert. I find it difficult to think on my feet. How can I get better? Oh, Robert, I love this question. Uh, part of the problem, you know, Chris Anderson has written about how snowboarding evolved, and it turns out YouTube changed snowboarding. How? Because it used to be that you would work for a month or six months on a trick, and then you'd do it at the Olympics and everyone would be stunned. But now someone does a trick. It's on YouTube the next day and everyone knows it the day after that. So the ratchet goes up, 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 super fast. Well, part of the problem of uh, Jibo and this idea that anyone can broadcast themselves is you are seeing people who have practiced their entire lives to be good at thinking on their feet. And you are understandably thinking that that might be the standard. And if you can't be that good at leaving out the ums and the huhs, and if you can't be that smooth, you shouldn't even try. And I think that's a mistake. Without a doubt, you have thought on your feet before. The waiter comes to the table and says, what do you want for dinner? And then tells you the specials and you order right on the spot with no hesitation and no worrying. We need to figure out how to scale that. And the way you scale it is by practicing it. And the way you practice it is by being bad at it. You know, Wayne Gretzky, greatest hockey player, 
He was terrible at hockey when he was three years old. At five, he was better than me. But when he was three, he was terrible. Something happened between three and five. And what happened was he practiced being bad until he was good. So you've got an iPhone or a smartphone. You've got a camera. Start recording yourself. Start building a channel of your content and do it 20 minutes a day, every day. And a month from now, get back to me because I think a month from now, you're going to be really good at it. All right, this one's from Wesley. Should a course be live or recorded? What is the future of e-learning? Ah, I love this question. Should a course be live or recorded? So I've thought a lot about this because I make courses and I'm a teacher. Here's what I believe. I believe that it is possible to learn a lot from pre-recorded video if you are enrolled and committed. How can that happen? Well, one way it can happen is because there's a prize at the end, a certificate, a test. And that's the old model of school. So it feels to me like a lot of the old model of school needs to move from super expensive, inefficient, live lectures where people aren't allowed to ask questions, which is most of big college, to pre-recorded amazing lectures followed by intensive sessions where you can ask a question. Way more efficient. You'll learn just as much because there's a prize at the end. But online learning, online learning where there's no test, online learning where there's no certificate, how do we make that work? Well, I'm proud of the Udemy courses I've done. And if that works for you, I hope you'll consider taking one. But it turns out that peer connection, discussion boards, live coaches, things gating over time, that, that liveness, it works. You know, the, the typical online course has a 96% dropout rate. 96%. The Alt-MBA has a 2% dropout rate. And the reason it has a 2% dropout rate is because we're there with you in real time. It's live. That in the marketing seminar, which we're relaunching soon, the, the marketing seminar comes out every two days and keeps people in sync day by day. You can do it at your own pace, but a lot of people like to be with what other people are doing. So I think the future of education is bifurcating. There is going to be education worth paying for that's got that live urgency. And then there's going to be education that's based on digital. And as we've seen from music and from videos and from books, when things go digital, they get cheaper. And that's a good thing because it'll be widely accepted. So we're going to have both. We're going to have the urgency of now, which will be worth paying for, and we're going to have the pre-recorded knowledge, which I hope will get to ever more people. So that's today's episode. You got to see it first live. Thanks for being part of this. We'd love to hear your questions about this week's episode. Please visit akimbo.link and press the appropriate button. One other thing, upcoming, an all Q&A episode. So if you've got a question that we haven't covered that you'd like me to get into, go ahead and submit your question. Thanks for listening.